You thought that you could have it all And life could be a ball But you fell and scabbed your knee Now you can be Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Recovering CEO podcast. My name is Derek, the Recovering CEO. And today we are here with an exciting new guest, uh, Angie Brantley. She is a MA LPC CSAT. Uh, She's a counseling psychologist and licensed professional counselor who approaches therapy from a holistic base. She studied holistic wellness and believes in mind-body interconnectedness. So good morning, Angie. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Derek. Awesome. Well, welcome. Welcome. So tell our listeners, you know, you are a CSAT. Can you explain what that is? Sure. CSAT stands for Certified Sexual Addictions Therapist. And um, sometimes it's sexual addictions and trauma therapist, depending on who you ask. But we certainly do focus on trauma. Okay, wonderful. So trauma, sexual addiction, and that's perfect because the recovering CEO, we are trying to help people with all addictions. And, you know, so we're trying to raise awareness. We're trying to help people relate. Um, a lot of people that might listen to this may not know they have a problem, for example, with sex addiction. So uh, tell us a little bit how you got started in the field of both sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. Sure. Um, so I was practicing um counseling psychology in a general practice, a lot of focus on depression, anxiety. Um, I volunteered one day a week at a clinic for people who were underinsured or uninsured. So a lot of stressful situations, including homelessness, addiction, um, people struggling with um, interpersonal relationships and that kind of thing. I had my own betrayed trauma, uh, betrayed partner experience. And so a colleague of mine who was working in the field of sexual addictions, um, he started recruiting me um, and inviting me to things and telling me that, you know, I think you'd be great at this. Um, And I kept ignoring it until finally I realized that he was right, that I had my own recovery story. I had come out the other side and that I could help others in that field. And so um, Rich Boggs, who is another certified sexual addiction therapist, he is the one that encouraged me to take the CSAT training and I did it and I am so glad I did. So I get to work with people struggling with sexual addictions and betrayal trauma, and we get to really investigate and uncover the roots of the addiction. So that's how I end. No, that's wonderful. You know, and, um, you know, by doing this podcast, I am learning a lot, right? I'm learning a lot fast. And that's part of my job is to learn so I can share and then also to bring on experts like you. Um, So can you explain to our listeners a little bit how trauma can lead to sexual addiction? I don't, I don't quite understand how they connect. Sure. So, you know, our brain goes through different developmental stages. We have surges in brain development at, at different ages, but the final surge isn't until age 26, 
when the prefrontal cortex is finished developing and can start connecting um, experiences with long-term consequences. But until then, all through our life from birth onward, we are trying to make sense of our experiences and our environment. And so we form beliefs about ourselves. We also form um, coping skills, coping mechanisms, soothing mechanisms. Some of them are healthy, some of them are unhealthy. So when there is um, a sexual addiction, for instance, there's usually a, um, a trauma trigger that starts that. So it could be something as simple as pornography exposure. So we know in the United States now, the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography is eight. At eight years old, that brain has no mechanism for storing and sorting that information and understanding nuances, but it's arousing, right? Because we're all sexual beings. Every person born on the planet is a sexual being. So depending on how it, it manifests, if it manifests with, I saw that boy, that was kind of interesting. I feel excited or aroused and I don't even understand why, but I want to see more of it. Or sometimes it involves someone um, becoming sexually stimulated and then that switch gets turned on. And once it's turned on, we can't turn it off. So we develop an arousal template, positive or negative, positive sexual experiences at whatever age, help us develop our arousal template and so do negative experiences. So we know that there are a lot of people with sexual addictions have experienced some sort of sexual trauma, whether it's a boundary violation where um, an older person showed them um, a porn pornographic video or they saw pictures or somebody touched them um, or they witnessed sex between people. Um, it, causes the brain to re react in a way that the child can't understand. And so they develop soothing mechanisms. So that manifests in a lot of different ways, but quite often um, what leads to sex addiction is that the, the desire to avoid, numb and escape what we're feeling leads to unhealthy coping mechanisms such as um, cheating or masturbating um, to pornography or um, being a, a predator in the way that the hunt, that excitement of the hunt. And there's a lot of things that go on with that, with brain chemistry and the, um, the pleasure center. And we can get into that if you'd like. I don't know how deep you want me to go. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's very interesting because... Um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but trauma could also lead to drug addiction and alcoholism. Isn't that true? Absolutely. It's all avoid, numb, and escape. Right? So people will develop different coping mechanisms when there are things in their life that they can't make sense of or that is so overwhelming that they, they think they cannot tolerate this feeling. In some families, um, avoid, numb, and escape is modeled and talking about feelings is not. And so 
what do we do then? If we've got all these feelings and nobody wants us to talk about it, then we have to learn some way to avoid numb and escape. And so that's that can manifest also in alcoholism, um, drug dependency, gambling, um, shopping, overeating, um, lots of different ways to cause a brain state change. It's all, it's all to the same end where we're just trying to not feel this unpleasant feeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very interesting. So um, I'm just curious. I, I don't know if you can answer this, but um, you know, they always say in AA, you know, people don't necessarily come in on a winning streak, right? Like when they're at their first meeting, um, how do people end up coming to a seaside? Like, it seems, you know, kind of random or like maybe people wouldn't know about it. Do they, do they get in trouble or something? Or is it just kind of a change in their thinking? Generally it's when life becomes unmanageable. Um, so that could mean that there's a disruption in their interpersonal relationships, either that, you know, marriage or dating, um, their partner might find out it could be at work that, um, their addiction is starting to interrupt um, their ability to perform at work or um, just taking up too much of their work day. I've had clients that were viewing pornography at work on their computer, and they knew that they were being monitored, but the addiction or compulsion takes over. And so they needed to um, address that problem, get help. It, all different um, scenarios. Some people just decide that the cost of continuing to deceive the people they love is too high. So the inner turmoil. So there might not be an external motivation, but just that the turmoil that they're living in, the chaos they feel inside, um, the cost is too high. So they seek help. Hmm. Wow. It sounds like uh, sex addiction is just like any other addiction where once the addiction takes hold, um, you really lose control, right? So some of these descriptions, like where people are being monitored at work, but they still do the activity. Um, I could, I could totally see that, right? Cause once you're, once you're there, there's, there's just really no turning back uh, as an addict. Um, so tell us a little bit spe- specifically. So since you're a CSAT, what are some key ideas that people should know about sexual addictions? Like what should they look for? How would they know they have a problem maybe? Okay, I'll take one section of that at a time, but um, some some things to know about sex addiction. From my perspective, sex addiction and food addiction are probably two of the most challenging because we don't want you to be abstinent. We don't want you to just quit cold turkey and never touch it again. We do want you to have healthy sexuality. We want you to eat right? You, you need to nourish yourself. Um, and so that makes them particularly challenging. The idea of sex addiction as just someone who really likes sex is a falsehood. Um, I envision sex addiction as this little gremlin that moves in and hijacks your brain and it wants to be fed. And it will do whatever it needs to do to drive you to give it the food it needs, primarily adrenaline and dopamine. So when we have sex in a committed monogamous relationship, there's a certain cocktail that gets um, released. And that's dopamine and 
serotonin and tryptophan, makes you sleep, oxytocin, bonding chemical, um, lots of lots of dopamine, a tiny little bit of adrenaline, but lots of feel good chemicals. And then the relax, the relaxation that comes with the oxytocin and tryptophan. The chemical that gets released in anything outside of a committed monogamous relationship um, is the primarily dopamine adrenaline mix. And that is highly addictive. And so people get this state of euphoria and then the brain has an override system and says, whoa, that's way, way too much dopamine. And it starts capping dopamine receptors in the brain. So from then on, the addiction is planted because of that state of euphoria. The pleasure center is like, yes, we want more of that. But the override or safety system driven by the hippocampus says that's way too much dopamine. We won't keep ourselves safe. We cannot walk around like this. We will walk in front of a car. We won't listen for our enemies. We won't keep ourselves safe. So it starts capping off those dopamine receptors. So every time after that, you're reaching for that initial euphoria, but it never happens. But the pleasure center is pernicious <laughs> and it is committed to getting back to that state of euphoria. And so we'll drive behaviors looking for that hit. So one important thing, especially for betrayed partners to know is that in a committed monogamous relationship, the sex addict will never ever get that particular cocktail. So some women think that it's a deficit. Some men who are in relationships with partners who cheat, they develop a an idea that somehow this is a deficit in them, that they're not enough. Nope, there is no way that you could have ever provided that particular chemical cocktail that the addiction is driving toward. I think that that's a really important thing to understand about sex addiction. Um, I treat it very similarly to a drug addiction because I believe that's what it is. It's the addiction to that dopamine adrenaline mix. So um, tell me, remind me what the second part of your question is. Jeez. Well, first let me say, holy smokes. I'm telling you, when I hear the description, it's a, that's a powerful, powerful description. So, so I asked, what are some key ideas people should know about sex addictions? And when, when do they know they have a problem? What, what should they look for to think I might have a problem with sexual addiction? Yeah, so there are um, there are screening questions that we use with an SDI, which is a sexual dependence inventory, but really it is the same, I think, as AA or any drug addiction. Has my life become unmanageable? Is my addiction making parts of my life unmanageable? Is it affecting my relationships? It is, a, is it affecting my work performance? Is it keeping me from other good things that I want in my life, right? Because that, that is a deficit that the sex addiction or alcoholism, whatever it is, is creating a deficit because it's keeping you from the things that you really want in your life. Yeah, I, I could relate, you know, and, you know, me personally, I know because I've been sober, um, as I talk about on the podcast for 25 years from drugs and alcohol, but even as I was sober from drugs and alcohol, 
you know, which, yeah, thank you. It's, it's, it's great, right? It's wonderful. But my other um, coping and soothing mechanisms were always there. And I still had a strong desire to, like you said, numb and escape and avoid, you know, kind of like the hard work, you know, like one of my old sponsors, you say, says, I keep doing the things I don't want to do because I like the results. That's difficult. You know, it's, it's difficult to always choose the right thing. So um, I could really relate like food addiction, wanting to eat lots of sweet things or um, pastries or, and then I think even the sex addiction, like uh, looking at pornography or chasing these exciting experiences. I understand what you're saying about that kind of dopamine hit um, because it does create that euphoria. I've been watching euphoria on HBO and uh, everyone there is chasing a high, you know, they're just chasing a high and it's, and it does keep getting more and more, you know, um, like you were talking about how it caps the receptors, then wouldn't that mean that they keep chasing like bigger highs or bigger things to get that? Well, the, the problem is, is that the, even if you do something that produces the same amount of dopamine, so many receptors are capped off now that you won't feel the same euphoria because the, the amygdala is concerned with keeping us alive. That is our um, alarm system and it's sending messages saying, whoa, 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 we are not safe. So you can do the same activity. You won't get the same level, but the pleasure center doesn't understand that. It's not connected to any part of the brain that regulates reason. <laughs> it's just concerned with uh, driving you to pleasure. So it will keep chasing something that you're never going to get. Mm-hmm. So another um, another important thing, I think <clears throat> it's important to know, um, the World Health Organization several years ago declared pornography um, a world health crisis because for the first time in our recorded history, we are having an epidemic of erectile dysfunction in 20-somethings and 30-somethings, and that is directly related to pornography consumption. So I just want to take a minute and explain that when you have that level of euphoria, the brain wants to know, oh, how do we get this again? And it starts rewiring the drive away from flesh Um, a a live partner to the screen. And that becomes a stimulus for um, that orgasm, ejaculation, that, that level of pleasure, that euphoria that it's chasing. So there are people who know in their 20s um, who no longer can get an erection when they're with their partner they have to have that connection to the screen because that's the stimulus that the brain has rewired to as the source of that euphoria. Is that making sense? Oh my God. Yeah, these kids are in trouble. I mean, that sounds serious. It it is. And it's unfortunate because as um, some of my clients have, have told me, it keeps them from connecting and dating because they're embarrassed. because they're so afraid that they won't be able to perform when they get to that level of intimacy in their relationship. And so they just avoid intimate, emotionally intimate relationships because of the fear of not being able to perform. So it is, it is, uh, it is a 
world crisis, it's very sad. So I just want people to understand that it is not a moral judgment, right? I have no opinion on that other than the horror of, you know, the sex trade and the workers, which I do have an opinion about, but you want to make home movies and look at them, go for it, not hurting anybody. But that is a real consideration is what is my brain being trained to respond to, right? And want to be able to respond to your partner and have a deep, both physically and emotionally intimate relationship. My goodness. Um, you know, it's interesting because that, that, that show Euphoria on HBO, it's all about high schoolers, right? And they all, and they talk about it on the show, they all watch pornography all the time. And one of the young women, she actually gets very involved in it. And she actually starts like, chatting online and uh, getting tips and, and all this stuff. And then she meets a really nice guy that she likes a lot and really likes her, but he doesn't, uh, like you said, kind of stimulate those endorphins because he's just nice and he's not dangerous and it's not all these things. And, and it's killing her because she can't really have a relationship with her, with him, even though her friends are jealous, she is so bored and she has to go chase these internet things. Very similar to what you were just describing. Right. The dopamine adrenaline hit is what her brain now wants not the physical and emotional intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so sad. I think back when, you know, um, like when we were young, right, there was no internet, right? There was no internet pornography. And I just remember those first few sexual experiences were such a high, right? And, 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 um, and then eventually as you get older and, you know, stay with the same part of then it just kind of levels off, right? Um, do people always kind of chase that, that high again, you know? Well, part of the treatment for sexual addiction is that we start introducing more and more pleasurable activities. The, the pleasure center in the brain needs stimulation. It needs, that's our reward system. But we, we have to retrain the brain um, away from that screen or whatever source um, that they associate with that euphoria to that there are other pleasurable activities. So right away we start talking about what did you used to enjoy doing that you've stopped doing? What would you like to try doing? What other sources of pleasure can we introduce into your life? And we also know that the brain, thank goodness, right? We have neuroplasticity and the brain will recover. The brain will heal. And it starts immediately. Um, the brain starts moving toward recovery, it will reverse that wiring and go back to, I call it factory presets. <laughs> you know, the, the original um, way our brain is wired, it will return. It, it's a recovery process. And so I don't like to talk about this a lot with clients, but um, it takes about two years to get over the chemical addiction that chasing that dopamine adrenaline hit, but it's not an event, right? The minute you're in recovery, your brain is starting that process and working toward full um, recovery from that addiction. So that's a, that is a great thing because with some addictions, right, that wouldn't happen. There would always be a driver toward the addictive substance, but with the sex addiction, our brain will 
recover and go back to um, the original wiring. So I think that that's hopeful. Okay, no, that is hopeful. And uh, another question for you, Angie. So I, you know, um, I, when I quit drugs, I was really quitting like marijuana. I was quitting, you know, mushrooms or LSD and alcohol, but I never tried hard drugs, heroin, crystal meth, cocaine. And some of those I think are very addictive, right? So they always scared me extra. And I've seen people and they've had a really hard time quitting some of those. Um, is it also hard to quit the sex addiction similarly? Yeah. So um, there are five things that we know of that rewire the brain. Um, it's crystal meth, um, crack cocaine, heroin, and then pornography and gambling. So two of those are behavioral, three of, but they're all chemical. They're all producing that state of initial euphoria. Um, I had a gambling addict who won. The very first time she gambled, she won a pot of $5,000, which for her was a lot of money. And she said, you know, that was probably the worst thing that could have ever happened to me because that state of euphoria, right? You put $5 in and you get a $5,000 return. And like I said, for her, that was life-changing money. That state of euphoria can't be replicated in other areas of her life. She's not gonna get that hit of euphoria from spending time with her grandchildren or from having a, you know, intimacy with her husband, never gonna happen. And so the brain is like, wow, that's awesome. We want more of that. Let's keep putting $5 in those machines because there's a chance that it's going to happen again. Not predictable with gambling rate, but there's a chance and the, the driver is strong enough that it will just keep, keep feeding so that it can have the chance of experiencing that euphoria again. Wow. Uh, Angie, you make me want to start skydiving. Now I'm afraid of heights, but I feel like I need some sort of <laughs> thing like skydiving to, to get excited like that. I know what you're talking about. I mean, oh. Well, I always say our sort of colloquial term, adrenaline junkie, that's, that's real. Adrenaline is highly addictive for our brains. Um, mm -hmm. The problem is, is that our brain quickly acclimates to whatever level of adrenaline we um, experience, then the next time we have to do something a little bit riskier to get the same hit, the same level of adrenaline release, because now we've done it and we've survived. So now the brain's like, eh, that's not that big of a deal. So instead of skydiving, now I need to do free falling. And now I need to do cliff diving, or I don't know what the progression is, but the idea is, is that you have to engage in increasingly risky behavior to achieve the same release of adrenaline. Mm -hmm. Very quickly. I, I totally, no, I totally relate. It's just like, you know, I, first I bought a pair of Air Jordans, then I bought um, a new car, and then I really wanted to buy a motor home. And then I wanted, you know, because it's a rush, right? It's a rush. And, uh, and it's interesting because I feel like even as, because I, I have all addictions. I really do. I suffer from all addictions. I'm just, and I'm working on it. You know, I'm working on it. I think that's part of it, right? We need to work on it. We can't just succumb. Um, and I always wonder who are the people that have such control 
that they can just moderate everything, right? Like, who are those people? I feel like it's like the, the royal family or something in England. Well, I don't know. The great news is, is that all of those skills and tools that they use can be learned, right? We have brains that allow us to continue to learn and change behaviors and to habituate new thought patterns, habituate new behaviors, um, and receive pleasure from a lot of different sources. So though the people, some people are lucky enough to grow up in families who model good, healthy coping mechanisms. So they learn to express their feelings. They learn that they are loved unconditionally, that they are accepted, that they're wonderful the way they are. Um, they, some people never experience traumatic abuse. Um, People who never experienced those things in childhood are already at an advantage. Right? They're, they're ahead of those of us who experienced trauma in our childhoods because we have to spend time relearning, learning healthy coping mechanisms that they just became ingrained in, right? Their families modeled it or they had people in their life that just showed them at a young age, this is how we handle emotion. This is how we handle stress. This is how we handle when bad things happen and your tribe is here to support you. We're all connected. That is not the overwhelming majority of people though. So the rest of us learn. We learn mm -hmm. how to say, I am feeling so stressed. And I think I'm gonna make a dozen chocolate chip cookies. Wait, no. I'm going to go talk to my best friend or my partner, or um, I'm going to write about it. And then I'm going to call somebody. Um, if I don't have anybody in my house, I'm going to call somebody. So I feel connected and supported because that's what the amygdala wants, right? The amygdala really wants us to feel safe. So if you've learned that your source of comfort and feeling loved is chocolate chip cookies, then when things get really hard, that's what you're going to want. If you've learned that sex is how you calm the feelings of insecurity or not being safe or feeling like everything's out of control, if that's how you can escape for a little while, then when things get really stressful, even if it's taxes, even if it's like, I've got this deadline at work, that's what your brain's going to want. So we just have to learn to substitute and build those new neural pathways that when things get really hard for me, this is what I do. I seek support and connection. I express my feelings. I get it out. I talk about or write about what I'm feeling. And then I seek support from my tribe, my people, my inner circle. Mm -hmm. So that goes back to the importance of connection, right? Uh, having people that you can reach out to and share with. Yeah. I think if you ask any addict about their connections, the deep, emotional, uh, intimate, emotionally intimate relationships with other people, they'll have a hard time coming up with a list because that's what the addiction has now taken the place of is we have this connection to the addiction because that makes us feel soothed, um, uh, lets us not feel what, what we're feeling. Emotional connection will do the same thing. It, can make you feel, it will make you feel supported. It also allows you to release what you're feeling so you don't have to carry it anymore. 
the, the problem with the addiction is it doesn't go away. It'll still be there waiting for you. Your subcortical mind will hold on to it until you're ready to deal with it. Mm -hmm. My goodness. You know, Angie, this reminds me because when I was growing up in high school and stuff, I felt like I was friends with everyone, but I had no close friends. And that's very interesting. And I always wondered why. And I could always just leave friends and move on. And it was because I didn't know how to build a close connection with them, yeah. honestly. And I think I struggled with that for a long time. And I still struggle with that. I have to almost work on building friendships and connections because I'm afraid to connect with people. Yeah. And it's just not a habituated pattern for you yet. Right. That every time you practice the behaviors that support what you want, you're deepening that neural pathway and making it a habituated response that the brain says, oh, yeah, when we're feeling like this, we reach out to uh, my best friend, my partner, my you know, cousin, <laughs> what, you have your people that you can connect with. Mm -hmm. I have one client who said, has said to me. Oh my gosh, I just, I, I had the worst day on Saturday. I was so stressed. I had to go out for a run. And I'm thinking, that is awesome. <laughs> that is great, right? That is a, I mean, that's a healthy coping mechanism. It really is. That's good self-knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard that too. So, all right, well, Angie, you've given us some amazing advice today. You've given our listeners some amazing advice. Um, do you have any parting words for anyone that might be dealing with sex addiction and listening to this before we close? Um, I, I do. I want to say that sex addiction, like any other addiction, thrives on secrecy and lies and staying in the shadows. Reach out for support. Um, find a CSAT in your area. Find someone who knows your whole story who's going to be your therapist, I call it a therapy cheerleader. You need at least one person who knows your whole story and loves you anyway, and go through the steps. Nobody can do this work on their own. We don't have objective perspective, right? We are so subjective about ourselves and it's all colored by our experiences and our emotions and things that we can't clearly see from the inside. So reach out and build your support community. There's so much help. There's groups, um, which are an integral part of recovery. There are people in your life who will love you anyway. And that's a really important message for a recovering addict is that I can know your whole story and I'll love you anyway, but we have to be careful about who has earned the right to hear our story and deciding who is going to be in our inner circle. And I always tell my clients, ask them, are you in a place in your life where you can be a support person for me? I'm going through something really heavy. I don't want to burden you, but I need to build my support team. Are you in a place where you can do that? And some people can say, no, I've got so much going on with myself right now. I can't support you. Okay. But and then don't personalize it, but build your support network, including a therapist, a group, a sponsor, a therapy cheerleader, you know, your partner. So that would be my, my advice. Well, I love it. Love it. I've never heard that term therapy cheerleader. So that's, that's not your therapist. That's a person outside of therapy that you can talk to and get encouragement. Okay. No. 
talk about the things that you're talking about in therapy between sessions and, you know. Wonderful. Oh, I love that. I love that. All right. Well, thank you, Angie Brantley. Angie is a licensed CSAT therapist. Uh, I will link to her information in the show notes. And um, thank you, listeners of the Recovering CEO podcast today. I hope you learned a little bit about sexual addiction and about um, what to look for, how to how to get through it, and how to how to ask for help, which is very important. So, thank you, Angie, for being here. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for having me on and giving me a chance to talk about this really important and um, important topic. And, and it's growing. And we know that, um, especially during the pandemic, even more and more people feel isolated and are looking for comfort. And um, I just want them to know that there's help out there. Wonderful. All right. Well, you have a great day and hopefully we will have you on again someday and uh, stay sober, everyone. Take care. You thought that you could have it all and life could be a ball but you fell and scabbed your knee now you can